My text for today comes from 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter number 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. The scripture says, And the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there. And let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they were cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, saying, Alas, master, it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there. And he made the iron float. Therefore he said, Pick it up for yourself. So he reached out with his hand and took it. Today we are continuing in our series, Mojo, as in how to get your spiritual stride back. And today I want to talk to you from the subject, the roadmap to getting your edge back. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to us powerfully and personally. Help us, Lord, to fulfill your will for our lives individually and collectively in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. As we come to the text, we find ourselves in the middle of the miraculous episodes of Elisha, which make the episodes of The Mandalorian look boring. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It was a Mandalorian. Elijah is not just saying this is the way. He is showing people the way to the Messiah. He is a man who is walking around with an unusual anointing. He is a bad man from that sense in every sense of the word. He's done many miracles. He carries with him a double portion of the anointing that was on his predecessor and mentor, Elijah, which means that since Elijah did eight miracles, Elijah does 16 miracles in his lifetime. The miracles are bountiful. The miracles are extraordinary. He parts the Jordan River. He turns bitter waters and makes them sweet. He provides a miraculous supply of oil for a widow woman. One of the things that we see here in our text, he makes an iron head float or an axe head float. Now, some people say it floated. Other translations say it swam to the surface. I like that translation better because it takes away any doubt that it was supernatural. If it was just float, some may suppose that it was maybe a little buoyant. Maybe it was hollow on the inside. But if it swam, it had to be supernatural. Anyway, Elijah is somebody that carries with him an unusual anointing. He doesn't have this anointing by accident. He has this anointing because he was very, very intentional about the things of God. And although it's not my subject, it's worth noting that one of the principles we can practice in life in order to get our edge back is to realize stuff doesn't just happen by accident. It happens by intention. And there are too many people in the body of Christ who are sitting back waiting for stuff to happen as if they have no part to play, as if they have no participation in what God brings to pass in their life. It's almost as if we sit back with a case of rock, Sarah mentality. God, if you want it to happen, you'll make it happen. But nothing happens in life by accident. You must be an active participant in the purpose for which God has put you on the planet. You have to play your part in your destiny. It happens by intention. And one of the things that Elijah did that enabled him to carry the anointing that he had, you might recall when he was called by Elijah to follow him, is he burned his plow. 
His plow was the place that uh, he, he worked in. It was what he did for a living. And when Elijah called him, he cut ties with anything that would hold him back for everything that God had for him. And there are too many of us in the body of Christ that are still in love or connected to things that are standing in the way of everything that God has for us. And thus, we don't really experience the full measure of our spiritual edge that God wants us to have because there are things that are more important to us than Christ. And for some people, your assignment this year is to simply burn your plow. For some people, your assignment this year is to cut ties with the stuff that is holding you back. If the Lord allows me to, I'm going to preach a message in this series called Stop It. Because how many of you know, everybody knows the things that they do on a regular basis that they need to stop doing if they're going to experience the supernatural power of God in their life. And sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Tell your neighbor, say, stop it. (laughs) Just playing with y'all. Anyway, Elijah carries with him this unusual anointing because Elijah is willing to do what it takes on purpose. He's willing to be intentional about going after everything that God has for him. But I digress. When I come to this text, the seven verses about the swimming axe head, what I find intriguing about it is this is not about how some person who was a sinful saint, and we all know there's plenty of those, lost their edge. When I look into this verse, I don't find somebody who who walked away from God who lost their edge. And last week, if you were here, we know that many of us lose our spiritual edge simply because we've left the Lord. We, we, we need to understand that when we leave the Lord, when we live a sloppy Christian life, we lose certain things that are part of our salvation. We lose the joy of our salvation. We lose the peace of our salvation. We lose the light of our salvation. We lose the wisdom of our salvation. And so we all understand when people leave the Lord, when they get lax in their relationship with the Lord, or as the Bible puts it, lukewarm, there's certain things that we lose, and we can all understand that. But what I find intriguing about this story is this story is not about a sinful saint that lost their edge. The story is about a son in the faith serving their spiritual father faithfully who lost their edge. Because sometimes even the faithful lose their edge. Truth of the matter is sometimes we all lose our edge. This person's story stands in stark contrast to the story of the prodigal son who left and lost. He stayed and still lost his edge. You see, moms who are super moms can lose their edge. Moms who have a career who are still holding it down at home, have time for the kids, have time to treat their husband nice. Dads that are super dads who are, who are working, who are involved, who are coaching, who are leading the family to church can lose their edge. People who are powerful lose their edge. People who are purposeful lose their edge. People who are principled lose their edge. People who are not playing church lose their edge. Even preachers lose their edge. At some times, we all lose our edge. I was reading a a story, or I remembered a story in one of Stephen Furtick's books, um, and and the story, or the book is called Greater, and it's a story about uh, a preacher by the name of Raymond Culpepper whose dad was dying of cancer. His name was Frank Culpepper. And his dad encouraged him to get his edge back. And the story was really powerful. I want to I share it with you. 
uh, Frank had some, some problems as, as he was battling cancer. Namely, one of the medical complications was that his stomach kept filling up with fluid and it had to be drained every two hours. And yet he still insisted that his son take him back to the place that he got saved. Here's how the story goes. The journey was a nightmare of medical complications. Every two, two or three hours, Frank's stomach would fill with fluid and he would become ill. It took them two days to get to the little church where 34 years earlier, after a week of binge drinking, Frank Culpepper became a follower of Jesus. As they walked into the building, Frank, with tears in his eyes, started talking to his son. He showed him the little Sunday school classroom where God had given him his first sermon, a message on 1 Corinthians 13. He told him again about how God had saved him, about his first encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit about his definitive nature of the call to ministry. Recounting his testimony, the frail man began to pray, clap his hands for joy, and raise them in worship. And Raymond says he felt like an intruder on a holy moment. A few minutes later, father and son climbed the narrow steps into the small sanctuary. This is the place, Frank announced triumphantly. Then pointing to the spot on the floor, he exclaimed, Son, that's where your old daddy got saved. Tears streaming down his sunken cheeks, he slowly walked to the spot and dropped to his knees. He thanked God for salvation, his wife, his mother, his children, and 34 years of divine faithfulness. He thanked God for his church and God's call in his life. Raymond said he had never seen his father worship the way he did on that day. He watched the Holy Spirit refresh his frail body with a new strength. Suddenly, Frank stopped praying and took hold of a bottle of anointing oil from the pulpit. Raymond was not prepared for what happened next. Son, Frank, began, I did not ask you to bring me here just for me. I came to bring you. For the next few moments, face to face and eye to eye, Frank opened up his son's heart and revealed its contents. His words burned Raymond. His father had never spoken to him like this before. Son, you've lost your edge, he said. You begin as a pastor with a big dream, but it's been rough. Your heart's been beaten up. You're discouraged. You're busy, but not very effective. You have learned how to act like a preacher, but you're empty. You've lost your burden for people. Your prayer life is in trouble. No tears punctuate your preaching. You're not hungry for God like you used to be. You know how to say the right things and push the right buttons. But like Samson, you don't know that the spirit is gone. The anointing is not fresh. Your fire has gone out. You have left your first love. You must get your edge back. Without another word, Frank anointed his son's head with the oil from the altar, laid his hands on Raymond's head, and he prayed, God, Forgive my son. He's grown cold. He's trying to do your work in the flesh and has forgotten it's not by might or by power, but by your spirit. Don't let him waste his precious life of your divine calling by just going through the motions. Receive my boy in the midst of his years. Give him his edge back. Promise me, Frank said to his son when he finished, promise me you'll repent, pray through, get your heart right. I cannot leave this place until you promise me. Raymond felt exposed and embarrassed and convicted. There he was, a husband, father, pastor, and leader being told that he had lost his heart for God and his cause. But the truth pierced him. Yes, he said, I promised, and he did. Raymond said that moment marked him for the rest of his life in ministry. 
You know what I pray for? I pray for moments because I realize that moments can mark us. Sometimes we're looking for extended seasons to mark us, but I pray that moments create seasons. I ask God to give me those moments that matter, that those moments that impact, those moments that are so memorable that they actually leave a mark on us that makes us follow through with the change that we vow in our heart. And this was one of those moments, but it shows us that everybody can lose their edge. The preachers can lose their edge. The people who are walking around on the street can lose their edge. The powerful can lose their edge. Everybody loses their edge. And if I could be moment uh, uh, transparent with you for a moment, I felt like in 2019, I lost my edge. I was preaching powerfully. I was praying diligently. I was leading the best way I knew. I was parenting the best way I knew. I was doing everything like I was supposed to be doing, but I felt like my passion to do more for God was dwindling. And I got to a place where I actually said to God, I really don't want to do too much more. I felt like I was entering a new season in my life where instead of striving for more, I wanted to enjoy where I was. I had felt like I've been to the mountaintop, but didn't want to go any further. I didn't want the res- responsibility of going further. I didn't want the hard work of going further. I didn't want to put in the hours of going further. I didn't want I didn't want the pressure of going further. I didn't want any of that. And it's almost like I said to God, I'm just going to chill right here. I'm just going to enjoy where we're at and wait to retire. But how many of you know the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us? And the Holy Spirit will not allow you to be complacent in your passion. The Holy Spirit will not allow you to stay stuck. And it's almost as if as the year came to an end, I heard God whisper these words on the inside of my spirit that I'm now sharing with you. He said, it's time to get your edge back. It's time to take it to another level. This is not a message just for you. This is what God said to me, this is that year where you get your edge back. This is that year where you do more for God. This is that year where you press in, where you prioritize God and his plan and see his power. This is the year where you not just take your marriage to the next level and your career to the next level and your stuff to the next level and that's all important. But this is the year that you take your spiritual life to the next level because when you take your spiritual life to the next level, everything else connected with you rises along along with it. The problem with us is we try to get parts of our life to rise without getting the main part of our life to rise first. And when you get only one part to rise, you can't keep that part there for the long haul because parts were never meant to stand apart from God who is the sustainer of all of our parts. We need to get it to rise. As a matter of fact, it's one of the transformational truths of Scripture. That's tucked away in these seven verses about the swimming axe head. And it's contrary to what we hear all of the time in society. We've all heard the expression, what goes up must come. Do you know what the truth of Scripture is? What goes down must come up. See, one of the things that you have to realize that as a child of God, you have something built into you when you give your life to Jesus. And that is the power to not just bounce back, but the power to come back and not just come back to the place that you were at before. Not just get your edge back like you used to have it, but get it back better than you ever had it before. And this truth is all over Scripture. It is the predominant truth of Scripture. You find it everywhere. For example, he that loses his life... We 
will find it. What's the takeaway? What goes down must come up. For example, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What's the principle? What goes down must come up. There is nobody who has left land, money, family, and houses for my sake in the gospel who shall not receive a hundredfold in this life and eternal life in the life to come. What's the principle? What goes down must come up. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises up again. What's the principle? What goes down must come up. And the hallmark text that teaches this transformational truth in all of the gospels, when they went to the tomb early one Sunday morning, they found that the stone was rolled away. What's the principle? What goes down must come up. As a child of God, you have the ability to come back from anything that you lose in life. And what I love about God is God not only gives us a message, but God always gives us a road map. God always teaches us how to cooperate with him so that we could receive from him what he has for us in life. And so in this text, he gives us a road map to getting our edge back. And there are three destinations, if you will, on the road map to getting your edge back that I want to share with you. The first is preparation. The second is determination. The third is invigoration. And each of them plays an important part in getting your spiritual edge back. The first one is preparation. And this speaks of or speaks to what you did before you lost it matters. What you did before you lost it matters. And we know this is true almost about everything in life. Because if we did something prior to attain something and achieved it and then lost it, we know how to get what we lost if we'll simply do what we once did. And so we see this in every arena of life. Um, we, we see it in marriage. I love when people come and see me and, and they tell me that they, they have lost their love for one another. And they think it's unfixable. And the solution to getting, by the way, did you know getting your love back in your marriage is easy? Y'all are like, no, it ain't, Pastor. No, it ain't. Trying for 10 years. It's easy. Why? Do what you once did. Isn't that what Jesus said in terms of our love for him in the book of Revelation? We looked at it last week. Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, he commended them for the things they did well. He said, but I have one thing against you. You have lost your first love. He said, repent. And then he said, do what you did at first. And so it's real easy to get your love back. You do what you did at first. You remember what you did at first? Anybody like me, you know, you leave the phone off the hook the entire night just so you can hear each other breathe. Anybody, anybody do that when they were, when they were dating, when they, when they were first falling in love? Like, no, I never did that, Pastor. You ain't as romantic as me. <laughs> right? You held the door. Anybody remember, you know, you laughed at every joke, whether it was funny or not? You get married for like five years, you're like, that ain't funny. <laughs> right? It, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Uh, you, when, you, when you're married for a long period of time, you no longer pay attention when you talk, you know. used to be like everything mattered. You'd pay attention to stuff even if you didn't want to hear it. You'd lock in your eyes. You'd be, you'd be nodding politely and yeah, mm, and tell me more and acting like you're interested even if your eyes were about ready to, to glaze over because, you know, you were just doing that. Now you're married. You don't even make eye contact anymore, you know. Men grunt and they don't make eye contact. And so women know this. And so you know what women do? They walk right in front of the TV. 
stand there and they talk to you. And you're like, move out of the way, don't you know? I can't see to you. And the reason why they're doing that is because they're looking for some eye contact again. And here's what I've learned. I've learned when you just do what you once did, you'll have what you once had. And so it's easy to get back. And so when I talk about preparation, as in what did you do, what you did before matters, it matters because it gives us a measuring stick. And that's important because anytime we've done it before, even though the devil would try to convince us that we can't attain it again, if we've done it before, we know that we can do it again. But that's not really why preparation, as in what you did before, matters. It's important getting your spiritual edge back. It matters because God has a fantastic memory. Yeah. Some of you are like, oh. That's bad, Pastor. Because <laughs> if God is remembering everything that I did, this ain't going to be pretty, Pastor. If he remembers that I did this and that I did that and that yesterday I said I wouldn't, but I did it anyway. And, 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 I, and I said that I was going to be in church more often, but it's 65 degrees out, and so half the people are supposed to be in church ain't in church today. And, and if God remembers... And that's bad. And see, that is a religious mindset. It's a religious mindset because we actually think that what God remembers most about us is the stuff that we've repented of. And one of the things that I realize about repentance is that God forgets. He has holy amnesia about the things that we do that we've repented of because that's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. And God even does better than forgets, God forgives because forgetting is an act of the will. It's a choice that you make. I know as you get a little bit older, it doesn't seem that way because you forget a lot more. But I'm talking about forgetting stuff that that somebody's done or that you've done that's wrong, that's hurtful. Forgetting is an act of the will. That's why the Apostle Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things which are before. I press toward the, the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What was he talking about? He was talking about not looking back to your past mistakes to keep you from moving forward to the future that God has or holding on to your past successes as a platform that allows you to be lazy in your current, in your present, or in your future. He was saying at some point you need to let the past be the past and start looking forward to what's in your future because if you look in the rearview mirror long enough, you'll eventually crash. Right? So forgetting is an act of the will. And although God has holy amnesia, God does better when it comes to the things that we've done wrong. God doesn't just forget them. God forgives them. And the difference between forgetting and forgiving is when you forget, they're still there, but you're choosing not to focus on them. But when you forgive, all the evidence that they've ever existed is completely gone. That's why the Bible says that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us was nailed to the cross, removing it or taking it out of the way. The evidence is not there anymore that you've done anything wrong, that you've repented of in your past. Stop bringing that old man back to life again. I'm preaching a whole lot better than y'all are responding right now. Am I going too fast? Anyway. When I say God has a fantastic memory, I'm not referring to God remembering all the things that we've done wrong. But I'm, re- I'm talking about God never wasting a seed that we've sown for his sake. Do you know that God never 
ever, 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 ever forgets any seed that we've sowed for his sake. Hebrews chapter 6 says it this way. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Here's the principle. God never wastes because God has a fantastic memory, a seed that you've sown for his sake. So let me flesh this out for you. We all realize that our lives are the sum total of the result of what we, our lives now are the result of what we've sown in the past. Yes? Some of you are not convinced. Some of you don't want to be convinced. Because if some of you are convinced of that, it kind of is a hard pill to swallow, but that's where grace comes in. That, that's where God's intervention comes in. But the truth of the matter is life does not just happen. Life usually is created. There are certain things that happen that are out of our control, but seasons that are perpetual and cycles that happen are usually things that have been sown for. And and what we sow for does not always show up instantaneously, but it does always show up because seeds always produce harvest. They don't always produce instantaneous harvest, but they always show up and they show up in two places, seeds of the past. They show up in our present or in our future. It always happens. Matter of fact, the scripture puts it like this in Genesis chapter uh, number 8, verse number 22. It says, as, fo- as long as the earth is, there will always be seed time and harvest. In other words, what we sow for always produces a harvest in our life. In another place in Scripture, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, keep on casting your bread upon the water for you will find it after many days. What's it talking about? It's talking about how we create a present or a future and that is created by the seeds that we've sown in the past. And so I know this is not my subject, but if you don't like your reality, sow for a different one. Now, here's the problem with many of us in the body of Christ is that we don't understand this principle of how what we sow for creates our present or our future. And so we think that seeds sown create instantaneous harvest. And so most people, when they sow, let's pretend that I'm sowing right now and I'm just your typical average run-of-the-mill churchgoer, Christian. I put something in the ground, I go, clear! (laughs) And when it doesn't produce immediately, most people quit on sowing the right things because they don't see an instantaneous harvest. And by quitting on sowing the right things because you don't see an instantaneous harvest, you mess up the future that you're about to walk into because you don't understand how the principle works. That's why God operates based on faithfulness and consistency. And the more faithful you are in something and the more consistent you are in something, the better harvest you will reap at a later date in your future. And and old people or older people understand this a little bit better than younger people. Matter of fact, in Atlanta at Passion 2020, which kicked off the year, um, I, I believe it was Levi Lusco who is teaching the 65,000 college students who gathered there this principle. And what he 
said is what you, what you do in you or what you sow in your 20s, you'll pay for in your 30s. And, and I was wondering as he was trying to tell them this on whether or not they were just saying yes because there were 65,000 people and it was exciting to say yes or whether or not they really understood the principle that was being taught because our seeds create a harvest for our future. Now, if this is true, then, then some of you ought to be very excited about what's about to come in your life because God never wastes a seed that you've sown for his sake. And so many of you have been so faithful over the years in sowing seed after seed after seed after seed for the sake of the kingdom and the sake of the gospel. And what God wants you to understand is those seeds that you've sowed are about ready to produce a harvest in your life to allow you to get back the edge that you once lost because preparation is key to getting your edge back. And when you, when you look in the scripture or in the story, you find that these prophet school pupils sow three seeds in their past or in the story before the problem that helped him to get his edge back. Uh, the first thing that we see is the seed, the seed of having a high regard for the house of God. This is such an important seed. And I want you to notice in the text, it says this. It says, And the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let everyone make a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. Notice what, what they did. They saw that the, 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 the school, the place of the prophets where the word of God was being taught to them, we could equate that to the house of God, was having space problems. And so what they did was they had a high regard for the house of God and they all got together amongst themselves and they said, let each one of us go get a beam. Wouldn't it be amazing in the body of Christ if everybody brought their beam to the table? Wouldn't that be wonderful? The saints tickle me sometimes. The saints want a full-on revival with 20% participation. Wouldn't it be great if in the body of Christ everybody bought, brought their beam? Wouldn't it be great if everybody contributed what God has entrusted to them and had a high regard for the house of God? Wouldn't it be great if it wasn't just 20% of the people, like every church in America, our church is better than that, by the way. But wouldn't it be great if more than 20% of the people carried the load? Wouldn't it, because there are, there are scores of people who walk into the house of God every single week and just are like little baby birds. Let me get fed, 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 and just walk out of here feeling good. I get no amens. Nobody talking back to me, Mike. <laughs> There's a lot of people that just walk the check. Like going to a restaurant, ordering everything off the menu you can get. And then when a waiter or waitress ain't looking, just running out. And then having the audacity to come back and do the same thing again. 
They said, no, 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 no. We think too much of the house of God. That, that we, we're not going to participate in, in bringing our beam to the table. And because they had a high regard for the house of God, preparation, what you do before you lose it matters. Before you lost it matters. They were sowing seeds that they didn't even know about that would produce a harvest of getting back what they were about to lose that they didn't even know they were going to lose. Right? Beams. They went and got. Anytime we have a high regard for the house of God, it always produces a harvest. That's why the scripture says, and don't get nervous because the offering's already been taken up. <laughs> that if you bring your tithe to the house of God, God opens up the windows and pours you out a blessing that there won't be room enough to receive. Why? Because whenever you have a high regard, whenever you sow the seed of having a high regard for the house of God, it always produces a harvest in your future. That's why there's a story in the Bible about a centurion. You all know the story about the centurion? He was a guy that shocked Jesus with his faith. He wasn't even saved, but he shocked Jesus with his faith, right? And, and he had a servant who was sick, and he wanted Jesus to come and heal him, and Jesus was going, and the centurion said, no, you don't even need to come. I'm a man of their authority. Just say the word to my servant shall be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith, said, I have not seen such great faith. No, not in all of Israel, right? And he said, go your way, your servant shall be healed. And as he went his way, his servant was healed that self-same hour, the Bible says. But what most people don't understand about that story is there, there's a... There's a, there's a, um, a a whole other part to the story. And the whole other part to the story is when, when the servant first got sick, the censorian sent the Jews from the synagogue to Jesus to ask Jesus if he would come. And when the Jews got to Jesus, here's what they said to Jesus. They said, you should come and heal this man's servant. He is deserving because he built us a temple. And then the very next verse says, and Jesus went. Why? Because anytime you have a high regard for the house of God, even if you're not part of the house of God, but you have a high regard for the house of God, it always produces a harvest in your future. And so what we see here is these prophet school pupils had a high regard for the house of God, and they didn't even know it, but they were setting themselves up for a harvest to get back what they had lost in their future. But then the second seed that they sow is the seed of being part of the solution. You know what, I, I have a hard time with people who can pick out problems as a hobby. And, and, and they act smart about it too. Have you ever noticed that? They tell you as though they're the only one who has the ability to see the problem. Right? Tell you almost what a little... little But I want you to see here that, that, that these prophet school pupils, and I like to tell people like that when they tell me stuff like that, I'm like, hello, Captain Obvious. <laughs> like, yeah, I got it. Um, can we rely on you to solve that? Oh, no, I got time for that, Pastor. I got, I got time for that. I got time for that. So what's your point? See, see there, there's something to be said when you are a seed-sowing person who sows seeds of solution instead of a seed sowing person that brings up problems to sow seeds of discord. Oh, I didn't say that. Did I say that? And, and so these prophets, they, they noticed that there was a problem with the prophet's school and, and they didn't Go 
go to the leadership and just talk about the problem. They went to the leadership recognizing the problem but offering a solution in the process. And they said, here's what we want to do. We want to all get involved in solving this problem by going down to the Jordan River with our axes to chop down some wood. And we want to build something bigger. We don't want you to be consumed with the problem. We'll take care of the problem so you can be consumed with teaching the problem. Prophets, preaching a whole lot better than y'all are responding right now. Solution-oriented people. And um, what I love about this is that they're not just solution-oriented, but they're sowing a seed. That seed that they're sowing is a seed to, to get back or to change their future And we see this in the story of David and Goliath in the Bible. David goes down to the battlefield. He's already been anointed king, but he's been pushed to the side. It's almost like his place has been stolen or suspended or blocked, right? He needed a seed in order to get him past the block. Some of you got blocks in your way that won't move unless you sow some seeds. And you're just waiting for God to move it, and God is waiting for you to put the supernatural into operation and the law of seed time and harvest by sowing something in order to move something in your life. In any case, David has been blocked because nobody thinks he really can be king, although he's been anointed to be king. And you remember what happened? He goes down to the battlefield, and when he goes down to the battlefield, he sees everybody dressed in Captain Obvious costumes. Look at the giant. He's so big. He's too big to beat. He's too big to, 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 to defeat. He, we're going to die. There's no good for Israel. I mean, the end is here. The end is, the end is coming. The end is coming, right? Because all he saw was a, was a problem. Do you know what happens to your faith when all you do is point out problems? It's destroyed. It's, it's non-existent. For no other reason, the reason why you ought to be a person that is part of a solution is to empower your faith. Because if you are a problem-oriented person, I promise you, you're a person of little faith. And so David is watching as everybody has a problem, and because they all see the problem, their faith is not working, but their fear is very active in the situation. They are stricken with fear, and nobody will go out to fight the giant. But David says, I'll be part of the solution. I'll go. I love God. God is so good. God don't need many. God just needs one. Amen. You could be in the, in, the, in the company of a bunch of problem people, but you could be a solution person, and God will take you with your problem-solving ability and take you right past shepherd boy, right into the place of being king of the most powerful nation. Because when you sow a solution, you set yourself up for a bright future. They, they, were, they were sowing a solution. But then what I really love about this story is not only did they sow that seed, but they sowed a third seed, the seed of honor. They didn't just talk amongst themselves and decide, well, we're just going to do this. We're not going to tell nobody. We don't care whether they really like our solution or not. We're just going to go and do it. Did you notice what they did? They went to their spiritual father and they said, sir, we have a solution. Will you give us your blessing to do it? And some people hear that. You know what some people actually feel in their heart? I ain't got to ask nobody permission for nothing. I'm a grown adult. I do what I want to do. You have no idea about honor. You are honorless 
when you think because you're an adult, you don't need blessing and permission to do certain things in your life. Because the kingdom of God is not just for kids. The kingdom of God is for adults. And although we are always God's children, God does expect us to grow up in the things of the faith. And one of the things that we ought to grow up in is we ought to grow up in honor. And they went to the man of God. And they asked for the blessing of him. Is it okay with you if we do this? Can I also tell you why it's important to ask when you have solutions to things? Because not everything, although it's a good thing, is a God thing. There is vision that runs organizations and churches and houses and so on and so forth. And not everybody can always do everything. And just because your solution, although it's wonderful to be solution-minded, isn't accepted, doesn't mean that you're a bad person or the organization is off. What it means is that there's a vision. I have learned that as we grow, I cannot say yes to everything. Because if I say yes to everything, it will prevent us from being good at the things that are important. And so they go and they ask for his blessing. He gives it, but then they say this. They say, well, we were thinking, can you come with us also? We don't just want your blessing, we want your presence. And here's what we need to understand, that we cannot have the blessing of God without the presence of God. And there's a whole lot of people in the body of Christ that are wanting the full blessing of God, but not attracting the presence of Almighty God. They're not positioning themselves to take the presence of God with them wherever they're going. And then they're wondering why the blessing of God doesn't show up. But whenever you sow the seed of honor and you require or you request the presence of God to go with you, you are preparing for a problem in advance. Because when you bring the presence with you, the presence is on the scene when the problem that you didn't know was going to happen shows up. And because they invited the presence with them, when the axe head fell, the presence was present to deal with the problem. But when you don't bring the presence with you, because you don't sow this. By the way, if you don't walk in honor, the presence of God will not stay with you. For example, amazing to me that, you know, Jesus said something that was pretty powerful. He said, honor, give honor to whom honor is due. And, and he was talking in context about Caesar. Whew. Go ahead and read about Caesar. Because we live in a generation that has got it twisted. How do we stay right side up in an upside down world? We got living in a generation that God has twisted. This generation believes honor is only given if honor is only earned. Because they don't know the Bible. Because honor is not necessarily a thing for somebody else. Honor is also a thing for you. And honor is not agreement with everything. Because there are a lot of things that people who are over us or people who are leading us do that we rightfully should not agree with. But whenever we disagree, it doesn't give us the right to express dishonor. And I think we need to take a lesson from some of the great leaders of our past like Martin Luther King. 
who talked about darkness cannot drive out darkness, but only light can. What did he understand? He was not only a great leader, but he was a great Bible scholar. And he also understood how the principles of honor set us up for a harvest in our future. So that if we sow now even something that is not received as such, we are setting into motion a harvest that cannot be stopped in the future generations. Some of you need to sow some seeds of honor in your life so that you can set yourself up for what God wants to do in your future. That was good right there. Free too. Not even extra. Not going to even raise the tithe to 12% for today. They sowed the seed of, seed of honor. And because they sowed these seeds, what they did before the problem preparation, what you do before you lose it matters. They set themselves up because God never wastes a seed that we have sown for his sake. Here's what God wants you to understand. Some of you ought to be excited about this because all the stuff that you've done wrong that you repented of, God doesn't even know it exists anymore. But all the stuff you've done right that you never saw a harvest on, you ought to get excited. And you ought to start God, this is my year where my harvest for all them seeds that I've sown for your sake come to pass. God, I'm going to see you move powerfully. God, I'm going to see you move in such a way that it's going to blow my mind. God, this is my season to see your power. So preparation the second thing, second part of the roadmap to getting your edge back is determination. What you do when you realize you've lost it matters. How many of you know you can lose it but not realize you've lost it? It's not anybody relate to, you can lose it but not realize you lost it, right? It's like, you know, men... Look in the mirror, they still see like, you know, Adonis. And meanwhile, they got a big beer belly. You, you, you don't realize you've lost it, but you, you've lost it, you know. You've lost it, right? And sometimes it takes a little time to realize it, for it to catch up with you that, that you've lost it. Sometimes we walk in blissful ignorance, right? Sometimes willful ignorance so that we can live in blissful ignorance because if you don't stare at something, if you don't recognize something, you don't have to deal with it. And so sometimes it's easier to just reject the fact that it exists rather than realize that it's present because you can move forward at least if there's ignorance. And a lot of people live in ignorance not because they don't know it's there, but they don't want to face reality. That's a different message. Determination. What you do when you realize you've lost it matters. And one of the things that I've seen in Scripture and, and studied in people is that all of the Bible greats and all of the truly great accomplishers have a spirit of determination. Jacob had it when he wrestled with God. He said, I'm not leaving until you bless me. Esther had it when she went into the king unannounced and she said, I'll go and if I die, I die. David had it when he said, this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing as defied the armies of the living God. Moses had it when he stood before Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go. David had it when he bowed his knee, or Daniel had it when he bowed his knee in prayer, despite the threat of the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had it when they refused to bow their knee, despite the fiery furnace. But when you, when you have a sense of determination, what does that mean? All in, regardless of the personal cost. Determination is, I'm seeing this through no matter how hard it gets. 
I'm going to diet for a week. And if I get on the scale and it says point two, I'm going to diet for another week. That was free for somebody right there. <laughs> I remember one, one day, I've been, I've been dieting since the day after Christmas. I lost nine pounds. I know you don't see it yet, but you will soon. I remember one day I had 1,200 calories the day before. Worked out hard. Got up. The scale went up one pound. I said, the devil is a liar. Look at that. I wanted to go in. I wanted to go in for breakfast that morning. I wanted to have me some bagels. I mean, pancakes, cereal. I mean, I was like, well, what's the use anyway? And then my determination kicked in. I said, I'm going to die another week. Just going to stay at it. Determination. I'm all in, no matter what the personal cost is. Watch this. I see it in this young man. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron ox axe head, I don't know why I want to call it an ox head, the iron axe head fell into the water and he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Somebody said, Where's the determination in that? Some people see that as exasperation. I see it as determination. Because you know you read the Bible from your place of revelation. You know that, right? And so if, if you are a person who sees life as happening to you, that's exasperation. But if you see life and stuff as happening for you, you see that as determination. So in other words, it, you could read this depending upon where your revelation is, just when I had it going on, just when my axe was chopping, just when I was blending in, just when I was doing what everybody else is doing, just when I was chopping like everybody else, working like everybody else, living like everybody else, just when I had it going on, suddenly things went wrong for me and my axe went down and since my axe went down, I'm going down because stuff always happens to me. You could read it like that. That means you need to get in discipleship. Because you're a life happens to me person. But I don't see it like that. Because I see it as determination. Because when he lost what he couldn't get back on his own, he didn't go anyplace else. He went to the master who was the only one who could give him back what he lost. So instead of turning away from the master because of the problem, instead of getting bitter because of the problem, instead of him quitting because of the problem, he turned to the one who can help him. He was determined that no matter what happens to me, I'm sticking with the master. Determined. Determined. He didn't say, anybody got a fishing pole? He didn't say, anybody got a net? He didn't say, anybody got a boat? He didn't say, can we make a human line here? He said, no, 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 no. I, I see I lost something, and, and I know that I can't get it. I can't will it back. I can't get it back. Oh, I know I got to participate, but I know I need God's power. I know I need the whole reason why I may have lost it in the first place is because I left the Lord to begin with. So I need to go back or get right or stick with the one who can give it back. I'm going right to the master. Termination. What you do when you lose it matters but then again notice this the third key 
Preparation, what you do before matters. Termination, what you do when matters. Invigoration, what you do after you get it back matters. Elijah says to him, where did it fall? He's right there, right there, right there. Notice what Elijah did. He didn't say, give me the stick that the axe was on. I bet you didn't even know that when I read the story. He didn't say, let me put that old stick on that new accent. The Bible says that he went over to the tree, Elisha, and he cut down a new branch. And he cut down that new branch, and he threw that new branch into the water. And that axe head that sunk was now an axe head that swam. In other words, that axe head wasn't the same as it used to be. It now had supernatural power on it. And if the edge is going to be sharper, then the thing holding the edge has also got to be sharper. So he said, what I'm going to do is not give you back the old thing again. I'm going to give you a new thing again. I'm going to give you back an edge that's not the same as what you used to have. But I'm going to give you back a better than ever and more powerful edge than you used to carry. And then the edge is standing there. I see it like floating on the the surface. And I almost see it like it swam right up to the shore. You know, right by both their feet. And I don't know, maybe the the young man, the Bible doesn't say this. They're kind of looking at Elijah like, now what? Like almost as if he was expecting Elijah to pick it up and give it to him. And it's almost that the fact that it swam there and stayed there. It's almost like here's what Elijah was saying. He was saying, I've done for you everything I can do for you. He said, he said, I gave you your edge back. I restored your marriage. I healed your body. I blessed your finances. I gave you a new promotion. I gave you a new job. I gave you a different platform. I, I did whatever I could do for you in the natural. What you couldn't do for you, I've done for you. But now you've got to do your part. Now you've got to pick it up. It's amazing how we're waiting for God to do everything. And here's what God's saying. He's saying, so if I give you your edge back, what will you do with it? Let me praise you another way. Why should I heal your body? Let me put it to you another way. Why should I give you more finances? Let me put it another way. Why should I restore your family? Let me put it another way. Why should I promote you? In other words, the, 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 the instruction begs a question. And the question is, what are you going to do with the new and improved, whatever that new and improved is for you? Are you asking God to give it back? Are you asking for the new and improved because all you want to do with your promotion is just get a bigger house? Nothing wrong with a big house, by the way. I want you all to have big houses. In heaven, we're going to be living in a big house. Mansion, it says. That's at least my Bible does. Maybe your Bible says something different, but my Bible says mansion. Why should he heal your body? So that you could go on living just the way you used to live? So that you can go on with a 65 degree weather having something better to do than be in the house of God. Why should you? Here's the question, God. What are you going to do now that I've given you a new and a better year edge? How are you going to use it for my glory? How are you going to use it for what's important to me? 
You know what I think? You know what I think the prophet became? Paul Bunyan prophet. Look at all the people like 25 and under. They're going, what's Paul Bunyan? What's, what's, what's fine. How, how many... How many knows Paul Bunyan? Let me see your hand. You know, Paul. How many no idea what Paul Bunyan is? Let me ra- raise your hand if you don't know. Let all the young people have no idea what Paul Bunyan is. And I told Blake, I asked Blake that he was my, he was my like sample case in the, in the first row. I said, you know who Paul Bunyan is? He said, no. I said, come on, man. The young people expect us to know all their stuff, but they don't expect to know any of our stuff. Like I told him, I said, yo, we know what TikTok is. But you don't know what Paul Bunyan is. Paul Bunyan was a lumberjack. Paul Bunyan was a dude that had this big old accent. And everybody else had a chop, 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 chop to get it. But Paul Bunyan would just go and the tree would come down. And so I think what happened when he got a new, and the Bible doesn't say because the story just ends abruptly. It just goes on to the next exploit. We don't ever hear about the prophet school pupil again. But I think he turned into Paul Bunyan prophet school pupil. I think he took his better than ever axe and he went over to the trees that everybody else would chop it Chop, chop, chop. Says, stand back. Let me help you chop. Pop, pop, pop. Why? Because when God gives you more, you ought to do more with the God for what God gives you. The story ends abruptly because it's a challenge. It's a challenge for you in 2020. Are you going to pick it up? Not pick it up in all the things that we all want picked up in life. Not pick up your marriage. Not pick up your parenting. Not pick up your career. Not pick up your dream. All that's great, wonderful, everything fantastic. But are you going to pick up what matters most? Your spiritual life. And are you going to commit to picking it up so that everything else can rise with it? Would you stand to your feet?